you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in John chapter 11. You will recall that John 11 is a transition chapter. It is the last chapter in the so-called Book of Signs, the first half of the Gospel of John. And right after this, beginning with chapter 12, the focus shifts to Passion Week and our Lord's death upon the cross and resurrection. Our text this morning is the center section of this episode of our Lord coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. We will begin in verse 17 and take it down through verse 27. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 11 beginning at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning to hear the words of life, to know more about our Savior Jesus, to be changed and shaped by your word. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that we would not just learn things, but that your word would make us more like our Savior, that we would be formed more and more in his image. This we ask in the great and matchless name of our Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing shows us our limitations like death. None of us can avoid it. It doesn't matter how much wealth we have or how much fame we have. Or how much skill we have. Or how much intelligence we have. Death comes for all. 
how can we deal with it? How do we know how to manage death? Because the fears that we have in this life are ultimately driven by a fear of death. We saw this greatly through the most recent pandemic, how everything changed, how our government changed, and our schools changed, and our families changed, and our jobs changed, and everything changed because of, at its core, a fear of death. Well, how we deal with death is we come to Jesus. Because he puts death in context for us. He shows us that he is sovereign over death. And when we know that and take that truth to heart, then death no longer has fear for us. This morning as we look at Jesus' interaction with Lazarus' sister, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to see our trouble. The trouble that we have in the face of death. And then secondly, I would like us to see God's promise. The promise of God that we have and we can hold on to in the face of death. But thirdly, and most importantly, I want us to see Jesus' fulfillment of God's promise. Because we don't only have the promise of God, we have the fulfillment and answer of that promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our need, God's promise, and Jesus' fulfillment. Let's begin then by looking at our trouble. Our trouble in the face of death highlights the pain of life. This is a sad scene that has opened up to us in this chapter. It involves a family, as we know, that was dear to Jesus. We saw last week that they are described in all of the Gospels. And we know perhaps not a great deal about each of the members of the family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But we know more about them than many other figures in the Gospels. You may recall them from the incident in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus was at their home and he is teaching and Martha is running around everywhere trying to prepare a meal. And she comes to our Lord and she says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. I'm busy here. And she's just sitting there. And of course, that's an opportunity for Jesus to describe for Martha and us that the best thing is not activity for Jesus, but to be with Jesus. So we know from last week that Lazarus had been ill. He was sick unto death. That's what Jesus had told us. And he told his disciples that Lazarus had died even before they made the journey back to Bethany. Now, Jesus also purposed to go to Bethany, to go to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Despite the danger, you will recall in verse 8, his disciples said, Lord, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again. And implicit in that is, this is dangerous, Lord. They're not only going to go after you, they're going to go after us. 
And Thomas ends that passage we looked at last week by saying to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. There's no doubting in Thomas here. He believes that they're going with Jesus to Bethany, likely to their death. But they'd rather be with Jesus and die than be without him and live. But we know that at this point, Lazarus has already died. Jesus tells us that in verse 14. And our passage this morning opens up with verse 17, that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now what this means for us is that Jesus comes to them when their grief is fresh, but final. What do I mean by that? It's been four days since Lazarus' death. Four days is not a very long time. Those of you that have lost loved ones will understand this. It takes some period of time before you can move past the initial grieving. And it will be some period of time, perhaps not for months or years, before life feels normal again without that person. So here it's only been four days Martha and Mary don't even know what to do with themselves. Their grief is fresh. But their grief is also, in a sense, final because Lazarus' death is final. Now, we understand that in our day and age, we have all sorts of medical devices to tell us when death is final. We can not only take a person's pulse, we can see what their blood pressure is like, we can monitor their brain activity. You all have seen the machine sitting next to the bed that beeps with the heart. And we all know the pain and the horror of hearing that machine go, death is final. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have any of that. And so the rabbis taught that the soul of a person who had died hovered over their body for three days. The soul trying to determine if the body was actually and finally dead. And then after three days, the soul would depart to the afterlife. Now, you don't need to believe that. That's not a biblical teaching. It's a rabbinic teaching. But it explains what everyone thought in Bethany. Four days have gone by. No one is going to even try to say, well, Martha, it's only been a day and a half. You know what the rabbis say, three days. Maybe he'll come around. No, 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 she would say, it's been four. He's finally dead. It's a final death and a fresh grief because they're still mourning. Many Jews, John tells us, had come to Martha and Mary He gives us this little detail that Bethany was only two miles away from Jerusalem. And so likely many of the Jews, in verse 19, came to Mary and Martha from Jerusalem. And their purpose in coming, John tells us, was to console them concerning their brother. This word console is a word you know well from the Bible. It's the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter. It's the encourager, the advocate. It is a word that describes someone coming alongside someone else to build them up, 
to encourage them and to comfort them. And so we see this even in our day, do we not? When someone dies, people come alongside them to encourage them. Well, the fact that so many had come from Jerusalem gives us a clue that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were very likely prominent people. That they were well known. And that many had come out of Jerusalem to comfort them and to guide them. And this teaches us the truth that death does not distinguish between persons. All die. It's something we all must face. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. But it is a duty of all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, to think about our end. Because when we do that, we understand our need. The other thing that this would show us is that there is an opportunity here. Because many of the Jews had come out from Jerusalem. And so it is an opportunity for the gospel. Many were here and they would see and hear Jesus. Well, Mary and Martha and others are experiencing pain. And then Jesus comes. He comes with his disciples. Now, why has he come? His disciples think that coming will lead to his death. That's what Thomas is surely aware of. I imagine that many who were around Mary and Martha's home thought he was coming to pay his respects. That's what you do when someone dies, don't you? Before a funeral, we have a period at the funeral parlor or at the funeral home in which there, we call it visitation. And people will come and they will comfort the family of the one who has passed away. They'll hold hands. They'll give hugs. They'll make encouraging comments. And I could just imagine that that's what everyone around that house expected Jesus was doing. But there's something interesting going on here. There's a role reversal. Something we don't expect. The last time Martha and Mary were with Jesus, Martha was occupying herself. And Mary went to be with Jesus. But now we see that Mary has occupied herself with her grief. She can't leave the home. The language that John uses is very instructive. Mary remained seated in the house. It's as if she's dwelling in the house. She has taken up residence in the house. She doesn't want to leave or move or do anything. The picture I think we are to get is that she's sitting in a chair or on a bench with a blank stare. Not moving, not talking, certainly not even aware of where Jesus is. But Martha, on the other hand, rushes to Jesus. Do you see this in verse 20? When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Martha is acknowledging that she needs Jesus. She goes to Jesus and she tells him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, some take this as a rebuke of Jesus. As if Martha was saying something like, Lord, if you had just come in a timely fashion, Lazarus would be alive. You failed us. 
Why were you not here? Why do you not care about us? But I don't think that's what she's saying here. She's going to Jesus because she knows no one else can do what Jesus can do. Only Jesus can solve these kinds of problems. And so this is her grief speaking through faith. Sometimes we don't know how much we need Jesus. I think that's where Martha is right now. You remember that there was the crucial fact that we looked at last week in verse 6, that Jesus waited until Lazarus had died. And you remember that there's a reason for that, that in verse 5, John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so, therefore, because he loved them, he waited. Jesus has more in store for them than healing her brother who was sick unto death. Our need is great. But we need to look to Jesus and to let him determine what we need. That brings us to the second point, God's promise. Martha continues her trust in the promise of God. She brings her petition to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you see Martha's frame of mind? She says, even now, in the worst of circumstances, when everything seems lost and irretrievable, whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Even death itself cannot shake her faith and trust in Jesus. She says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And, and this word I know, there is a certainty about it. It's, there are many words, several words in Greek that can be used to translate our English word know. This particular word has the connotation of knowing something because you have seen it in the past. You know the saying we have, seeing is believing. Well, that's what's going on here. Her knowledge is based on facts. She knows Jesus. Now, what are the facts that she is basing her knowledge on? It's the fact of Jesus' relationship with God. She knows the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, and she knows that the Father will give Jesus whatever he asks. Now, you can't come up with a bigger word there than whatever. It encompasses everything. You know, when children ask their parents for things, I'm sorry, kids, I'm going to rat you out here. Children know that they can ask for many things, but there's a point beyond which you cannot go. That you can push it only so far, and then there's a point where mom and dad will get frustrated and say, no, forget about it, I'm done, no more. 
What Martha's saying here is, there is no such point with the Father and Jesus. There is nothing that Jesus could ask that the Father would not give him. Whatever, no matter how great Jesus asks for something, God will hear him and answer him. Now this is a starting point for our prayer life. Our prayer life is through Jesus as our intercessor. You know, we pray and end our prayers in Jesus' name. We've done that several times already this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name not as a formula, not as a magic mantra that if we don't include it, God won't hear us. But we pray in Jesus' name knowing the relationship between Jesus and the Father. It reflects what Martha is saying here. Jesus intercedes for us and we trust him to intercede for us and we ask him to intercede for us because of the relationship that the Son has with the Father. Now I want you to notice what Martha knows What she sees, what she bases this on, is not what is right before her. Because after all, Lazarus is still dead. Life is still hard for Martha. Things haven't gotten better. It's not that she's on the other side of her grief, or she sees the the good things coming to her, and she says, well, now that I see that there's something good around the corner, I can be relieved and trust you, Lord. No, it's exactly the opposite. Things are horrible. Things are unchangeable. Life is bad. What she bases this on, her knowledge is the promise of the word of God. She knows that God has promised this. And so, We see this in her response to Jesus. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she responds in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And what this is, is this is what I would call an impersonal application of the promise of God. She knows her Bible. She knows there's a resurrection from the dead on the last day. And she tells Jesus, I know that's applicable here. Everyone will rise from the dead, including my brother. This kind of impersonal application is the difference between saying, I have this and someone has this. It's true, but it's impersonal. Even though Jesus has spoken directly to her, he says, he will rise again. Jesus uses the language of certainty. He's repeating for her the promise of God. He wants her to hold on to the promise of God. Now, this could just be seen as a general comforting. It's very likely that there were others around Martha who had said something similar. Remember the promise of the resurrection. You'll see your brother again. If you ever had a loved one die, you've probably heard those words. And they're true words. And they're a true promise. But they're general, aren't they? 
They're not specific. They're not personal. Is Jesus only saying to her, he'll come back to life? Martha seems to see it that way because of how she responds. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She says, yes, Lord, I know. That promise is true. Now, this is not a failure on Martha's part. She is truly holding on to the promise. So we should not rebuke Martha. We should not even seek to avoid holding on to that kind of promise, even generally. But there is one thing we are meant to see here. The problem is, is that the general promise only goes so far. Martha has made the promise impersonal. She's comforted by a general truth. But it falls short of what Jesus is saying to her. Jesus wants her and us to see much more. And that's the third thing that we see this morning. We see Jesus' fulfillment of the promise. That Jesus is the one we need. Now, Jesus could have responded differently than John recounts for us. He could have said to her, I'm so glad you believe God's word. It is good that you take comfort from God's word. You should be comforted. Take heart. He could have said, we wish things would be different. But they're not. In effect, these are the ways that we respond to death. Because we are limited. We are not Jesus. But instead, Jesus points to himself. Previously, Jesus had made general statements about the resurrection. He's done that in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. The resurrection was in line with mainstream Judaism. You may remember that the main point of conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was over the resurrection. The Pharisees professed that the resurrection was true. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They fought heavily over this. The only thing that brought them together was their collective hatred of Jesus. So, this is how everyone around Mary and Martha would have responded. But instead, Jesus points to himself. He goes further. In verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now he's once again picking up on this statement. We've seen it before. I am. It takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. It is God's self-declared name. I am who I am. I am completely independent. I am without beginning and without end. I did not come into existence. I am. And Jesus has done this over and over again to show us that he is God, that he is one with the Father, and that his character is such. He doesn't use this statement just to tell us what he can do. It's not just that he can bring about resurrection. He uses this statement to tell us who he really is. 
that he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just have resurrection and life. He is resurrection and life. That all life comes from him. He wants us not to just see some abstract belief, no matter how comforting it might be, the idea of a resurrection. No. He wants us to see himself. For us to know that we need Jesus. That he is the source of all that we need. Because it is very tempting for us to fall in love with the blessings that the Lord can give to us. With the resources he gives to us. With the friends and family he gives to us. With the gifts that he gives to us. But we are instead called to love and serve the Lord, the giver of the gifts. It is Jesus' power that brings about the resurrection. Jesus is the source of all life, especially eternal life. What a comfort that would be for Martha. What a comfort it is for us. Are you focused right now on all the problems in the world? Is your world dark and gray? Are you worried about conflicts and finances and laws and governments and newspapers and movies and colleges and families? Look to Jesus. Focus on Him. He's the one you need. He's the answer to all your problems. You see, that's why Jesus wants us to focus on Him. Do you see what Jesus doesn't say in verse 25? He doesn't say, whoever believes in the resurrection will live. That's what we might expect. Do you believe in the resurrection? Good. You'll rise again. No, no. What he says is, whoever believes in me. He's telling you to focus on him. It is Jesus that we must trust. After making these very direct statements in verses 25 and 26, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He comes directly to Martha. And I imagine in my mind's eye that he is with her and before her and he's holding her hands and he looks in her eyes and he says to her, do you believe this? That's his statement. He's not asking about Lazarus. He's not asking about the resurrection. He's not asking about the general promise. He's asking about himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he looks at her and he says, do you believe that is true? That's what I want to ask you. Jesus wants us to trust him. In spite of all of the pain that we feel. And I know, beloved, that there is plenty of pain to go around. You have loved ones who are ill. You deal with your own ailments and pains. You have children who have gone astray. You have finances that are in turmoil. 
But in spite of all of that, do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In spite of all the clouds that are in the way. You know, we have had a few days of slightly warm temperatures here in Houston. And one of the things you may have noticed when it gets to triple digits is that occasionally as the sun beats down on you, a cloud may come and give some cloud cover and blot out the sun, as it were. There'll be a little bit of coolness there. You also notice it when it's cooler and you want the warmth of the sun and the cloud comes in and it becomes a little bit darker than you want it to be. The clouds have concealed the sun from you. They've separated the sun from you. Now, I want to ask you a question. When that happened this week, did you ever say to yourself, well, I guess the sun is gone. It's never going to shine again. What will we do for light and heat? Of course not. That's foolishness. You know that the clouds are just temporarily in the way. That's how we need to think about circumstances that come between us and Jesus. There are going to be times of trouble and pain that will cloud your vision of Jesus. That doesn't make you an unbeliever. That doesn't make you a doubter. That doesn't make you lost. It makes you someone that needs to cling even more strongly to Jesus. To know that he's there. That he is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe Jesus? Because your eternal life depends on him. There is no life apart from Jesus. If you do not know Jesus Christ by faith, there is no life awaiting you. All that you can expect is death and a fearful judgment afterwards. And I would not be kind I would not be loving if I did not tell you that. Because Jesus is there. And you can look to him. And you can trust him. And you can have life. He's calling you now from this text. Believe in Jesus. Martha shows us how to trust Jesus. You may be saying to yourself, what does that look like, Pastor? What does it look like to trust Jesus? Well, Jesus says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. It's firm. It's quick. It's direct. Yes. And then she grounds that yes answer in the truth of who Jesus is. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Her yes is not based on emotion. It's not based on being manipulated. It's based on knowing who Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the Christ of God, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the one who will redeem a people. That's not just Martha's Jesus. That's your Jesus. We must know Jesus. We must know who he is. 
We must know that he is the Christ. And we must believe what Jesus tells us. When he tells us that the promises of God are fulfilled in him, we must believe him. And when we know Jesus, and we believe Jesus, then we must trust Jesus. We leave it there. We don't go into despair because of all that is surrounding us. We trust our Lord and Savior. We go to Him. And we say, yes, Lord. I believe. Let's pray.